Well, we've been talking out of Galatians for a few weeks now. Today I want to move on to a new section and a new subject. The title of today's message from Galatians is going to be The Purpose of God's Law. The Purpose of God's Law. Really, in great part, the subject matter of Galatians. Now, if you think back over the last couple of uh, weeks, in fact, the last three or four weeks, you'll remember that we have been seeing that we can't earn anything from God. We all pretty much agree, most Christians agree, that you can't earn salvation. Although, if we really understood it, if you believe you can lose salvation, you do believe you can earn salvation. The two always go together. I may talk about that in subsequent messages. But once we get it settled that we can't earn salvation, then we talked at length at this idea of our reward in heaven as saved people. And I addressed that subject at length that you can't earn that either. You can't earn anything from God. It's all by His grace. And yet that does not relieve us, does it, of the responsibility of Christians. Neither does it mean that we can live any old way we please. And we're going to get into some of that today when we talk about the purpose of God's law. Now as I read this section of scripture today, notice closely the words and the tone of the Apostle Paul. going to skip around a little in this section because I want to stay with our emphasis of the law today. I want to start reading in Galatians chapter 3 in verse 10. Paul says there, For as many as are of the works of the law. Now incidentally, hopefully we understand at this point that when Paul says, when he describes those who are of the works of the law, he's talking precisely about people that would try to make themselves righteous through the works of the law. He's talking about people that through their works would try to earn from God. If you think about it, that's all he could be talking about. The terms in the Bible under the law, of the law, or of the works of the law are all equal. They mean legalism. They mean to try to commend yourself to God through what you do. Now notice what Paul says about us. If we're trying to be right with God through our works, he says, For as many as are of the works of the law are under a curse. Why? Well, he's going to tell us. For it is written, Cursed is everyone that does not continue in all the things that are written in the book of the law and do them. So why, if your life with God is based on how good you keep the law, why are you under a curse? Paul says because if you your relationship with God is on that basis, that of works, then you can't possibly be good enough. Because the law says, cursed is everyone who isn't good enough through their works. Cursed is everyone who isn't perfect, really. So in other words, if you and I want to be on a works basis before God, it goes back to something that I said in a previous message. If we want to be judged by our works, if we want to be rewarded according to our works, on any level that you want to imagine in Christianity, then we need to understand that that is the basis that God will judge us, and He has to take into account every work. 
lots of Christians, for some reason, that think that God's going to reward them according to their works. Lots of those Christians think that all he's going to count is good works. And of course, the definition of what a good work is would come into play here, and I'm not going to get off on that. But no, if we want to be judged by works, if we want to be rewarded according to works, then the basis we're describing must include all works, both good and bad. And I mentioned how works include thoughts, attitudes, as well as deeds, intentions. Well, how many want to be judged according to works if God's got to add up all of your attitudes, all of your emotional works, all of your mental works, all of your imperfections? Bottom line is you and I wouldn't get any reward. We certainly would never be saved because we can never be perfect enough if we want to be judged on that basis. And that's why Paul is able to say here, Cursed is everyone that does not continue really living perfectly if you want to be under the law that way. Now, that pretty much sets the house in order in a hurry, doesn't it? It pretty much tells us that if we want to go the way of earning from God anything by works, even if all we're earning is his favor, that we haven't got a chance. Now, this brings into play the title of today, as I mentioned, the purpose of God's law. Why did God give his law? And Paul's going to start to tell us here a little bit about that. Again, verse 10, For as many as are of the works of the law are under a curse, because you can never be perfect. And he says in verse 11, No man is justified by the law or the works of the law in the sight of God. And he says that ought to be as evident as the nose on your face. It is evident. For the just, he says, shall live from out of faith. Now, he goes on, I'm going to skip a couple verses to keep the continuity and clarity. He goes down to verse 18 in Galatians 3. He says, For if the inheritance be of the law, the works of the law in other words, then it is no more of promise. But God gave it to Abraham by promise. Now, right there would be a nice summary of the last three messages I've given. I've been trying to prove that our reward in heaven, in addition to our salvation, that our inheritance cannot be earned. And you can't receive it on that basis. And it says it right here. It says, in fact, if that inheritance were of the works of the law, then it wouldn't be of promise, would it? It wouldn't be of grace. And he says, but God gave it to Abraham by promise. Now, verse 19 starts to talk about God's purpose forgiving his law. He says, okay, in verse 19, if all the promises of God and everything that God has for us are to be ours by grace, and we can't, we mustn't, we don't need to earn anything. Paul asks the question in verse 19, all that being the case, then why in the world did God give his law to begin with? That's a big question, isn't it? Why the law if we can't earn anything through the works of the law? And of course, this is a big question in Christianity. You answer this question, you are answering, really, the question of law and grace. And in fact, it will lead you into the truth of salvation and the real essence of the grace of God. So, 
Wherefore then serves the law? What is the law for, Paul says? And he says in verse 19, Well, it was added because of transgressions and sins until the seed, Jesus Christ, should come to whom the promise was made. And the law was foredained by angels in the hand of of a mediator. Skip down to verse 22, continuity again. But the scripture has shut up everyone, all of us, unto sin, so that the promise by faith of Jesus Christ might be given to them that believe. But before faith came, we were kept under the law, shut up unto the faith which should be afterwards revealed. Therefore, Paul says in verse 24, the law was like a schoolmaster unto us to bring us unto Christ, that we might be justified by faith. But after faith is come, we are no longer under a schoolmaster. Now, just that much ought to tell you plenty. The law was a schoolmaster to bring us to Christ, but once faith comes, we're no longer under a schoolmaster. Are we still under the law? The answer is no. In fact, Paul says in Romans 6.14, you are not under the law, but under grace. Simply put as it could be, isn't it? And he says, for you are all children of God, not by works, not by the law, but by faith in Jesus Christ. For as many of you has been, have been baptized into Christ, have put on Christ. And then again, Galatians 28, 29, there's neither Jew nor Greek, bond nor free, male nor female, for you are all one in Jesus Christ, and if you are in Christ, then you are Abraham's seed and heirs, according to the promise of God. So again, we enter in to all the promises of God by receiving Christ by faith. Then works emerge, because we're rightly related to God by faith. Contrast that over and against trying to make ourselves right with God up front through works. This really is the difference between law and grace. It's the difference between the true gospel of grace and what Paul in this epistle calls another gospel. That's how important this is. So wherefore, Paul asks, does the law serve? What's the law all about? Let's talk about that. Why did God, if it's all by grace give his law to begin with. Well, I've got three purposes of the law. Going to focus more on the third one, but let's talk about number one. If there's one thing that the law does, certainly up front, is that it shows our accountability to God for all that we are and for all that we do. Now, all you got to do is read the Ten Commandments part of the law to see that. Somebody wants jokingly said, but it's true. They are not the ten suggestions, are they? They are the ten commandments. Thou shalt not, or thou shalt, is pretty to the point. And so when we read the ten commandments, it certainly brings us back to the fact that we're all accountable to God. Now, of course, ultimately, and we'll see this a little later, accountability to God shouldn't be a fear thing. Accountability to God shouldn't be the result of thinking that God has a hammer over you and that he is going to smash you the moment you step out of line. That's not what grace is all about, but nevertheless, it is a fact that there is only one true God, only one way to him, 
and at the end of the day, we're going to either be with him or against him. And if you think about it, what had become of man through the sin of Adam in just a few hundred years mandated that God's first approach in restoring man was to pretty much lay down the law. You're talking about a world, at least at the time of Noah, that the Bible says their thoughts were evil continually. And then after the flood, it got almost as bad again. There was no knowledge of the true God in the world. That's why God had to start with one nation. And when you have a bunch of rebels, a bunch of thugs and criminals, if I can say it that way, living in this world, you can't come up to them and say, here's the grace of God. You have to meet them where they are. If you were given the job of taking over a maximum security prison that had fallen into disarray, the first thing you would have to do is lay down the law to get some order. And so God needed to start there by introducing himself to man all over again by laying down the law and showing how accountable we all are to him. The thou shalt nots again. Now the second thing that the law does, and the Bible does talk about this more at length, the law is a written revelation of the righteousness and holiness of God. Or we could even say, as far as it pertains to human relationships and man's relationships with God, that the law is a written revelation of God himself. It really is, because in order to keep the law, you would almost have to be like God himself. It's a standard we cannot meet. And as that, doesn't that speak of God? Who can meet the standard of being God except God himself? And so the law definitely reveals who God is, it reveals his holiness, and it reveals his righteousness. Now, this leads to the third purpose of the law, which really emerges from especially the second purpose, but also the first. If the law reveals God, his righteousness, and his holiness, what happens when you and I meet the law? What happens when you and I stand in the light of God Almighty? What's the first thing that happens? I'm talking in the ultimate sense. Well, the first thing that happens when I stand face to face with a holy, just, and good law of God is that I am exposed as being unholy, unjust, and bad. I mean, that's just the way it is. And that's not because God's down on us or wants to beat on us. That's because we are unholy, unjust, and bad. And the moment you and I step into the light of God, the truth is going to be shown. Now, this brings us really to an essential truth. You eliminate the truth I'm about to share from Christianity, and you don't have Christianity anymore. In fact, you will have total heresy because it is the basis upon which everything is built. And that truth is this. You and I are born into this world as a part of a fallen race. You eliminate that truth. You don't have Christianity anymore because if we aren't born dead into this world, we don't need a Savior. If we aren't born dead into this world, the Bible is a lie. If we aren't born dead into this world, then really, when come right down to it, what do we need God at all for? 
You see, Christianity is based, really, when it comes right down to it, on the first three chapters of Genesis. It's based on the fact that man was created perfect in a relationship with God, and that man walked away. And the entire race that has been born of Adam is born spiritually dead. That's the truth upon which Christianity is built. Now, the other side of the coin, that's sort of from our perspective, the other side of the coin is that Christianity is based on the fact that God himself was violated. And that has to be put right. That's from God's perspective. But if you and I believe that the universe, that this world really isn't that bad, and that we essentially are okay without God... We're never going to arrive at the truth, and we certainly will never come to Jesus Christ for salvation. Now, incidentally, just as a side, a lot of talk recently about Oprah Winfrey and her church, a lot of talk about there being many ways to the Father other than Jesus Christ. Every one of these heresies denies the fact that man is born in sin. One way or another they do. Every one of these thinks that all that we need is to be told that we're okay. And that if we just get enough self-esteem into our system, and we just receive enough affirmation, well then, we'll feel loved and we'll all be happy. That sort of a thing. And from that, of course, emerges the idea, once you eliminate the truth of original sin, logically it must lead to the fact that there can be many ways to the Father. Because there can be many ways to make you and I feel good about ourselves. It doesn't have to be Jesus. It can be Buddha. It can be Muhammad. If all that ails us is that, you know, we need to learn how to live a nice, happy life and love each other man's way. But you see, Jesus Christ is the only way to the Father simply because, number one, he is the only one who was God become man. He stands apart as that. You deny that, you deny Jesus. The Bible says that. The second thing is that Jesus Christ is the only way to the Father because He alone bore the sin of the world that separated us from the Father. Buddha didn't do that. Muhammad didn't do it. So Jesus being the only way to the Father isn't a matter of God sitting down one day and narrow-mindedly inventing a religion that He was going to demand everybody follow to make Him happy. Jesus is the only way to the Father because He alone is God, proceeded from the Father, and He alone bore the sin of the human race. And unless that sin, unless that sin nature, unless that old creation is dealt with and taken out of the way, there's no way for man to fellowship and walk with God. It isn't a matter of God's unwillingness. It isn't a matter of God being mad. We can't. Because through sin, we have no affinity with God. And all of this goes right back to the fall of man. Again, you deny the fall of man. You deny that man has a sin nature. The very best you could possibly turn out to be is a Pharisee. Pharisees didn't believe in original sin. That is why they thought they could make their way to heaven through good works and study of the law. And that's the best you'll ever come up with. But there are so many things worse than that in this day and age. That's why God says, listen, I don't want to hear about 
all the stuff that you want to do in this world, that you want to become, I am putting aside Adam and the old creation in the cross. I'm done with it. It's dead. I want to make a new creation. And again, all of this is predicated on the truth of the fact that Adam fell into sin. Now, when we understand that Adam fell into sin and the human race was ruined, what we see in that is that the fundamental problem with people, with you and I, is not found in what we do. It's found in what we are. Now, what we do emerges from what we are. But the fundamental problem with the human race is, simply put, we're born dead. We're born dead. We don't have God in us. And there isn't any way for us to fix it. A spiritually dead person cannot fix himself. They've got nothing to work with. Consequently, in order to pierce that darkness, one of the primary tools that God uses is his law. You approach a lost human being and confront them with a thou shalt not kill or thou shalt not steal, that will strike at the heart and core something fundamental in human beings, their conscience of nothing else. And they may ignore it. They may push it away. But once they've heard that command, they know it's true. Somebody once said, people that push aside God's law and ridicule it get sober in a big hurry once somebody begins to break God's law in relation to them. I might poo-poo whether I ought to steal or not, but let somebody steal from me, and I'll get religion in a hurry. People know. In fact, Romans 2, can read it later, he says... You want to judge people for sinning? You're guilty of the same thing. And what he doesn't mean there necessarily is that you did exactly the same thing. He's simply saying that if you have the capacity as a human being to look at somebody who is sinning and call it sin, you have betrayed your ability to know right from wrong because you're saying they're wrong. And once you know right from wrong, you know enough to judge your own self by that same standard. And that makes you absolutely accountable. And all goes back to God's law, doesn't it? We read here that the law was added because of transgressions here in Galatians 3.19. Notice that sin was in the world first. And then the law was added. It wasn't that God sat down with an eight and a half by 11 sheet of paper one day and wrote out a law, handed it to people, and then when they couldn't keep it, he said, Aha, I got you, you're sinners. No. Man had already fallen, and it was already his nature to sin. God said, You're so blind, you don't even know what you're doing. I'm going to give you a law that will show you. And so the law began... One of its purposes, its primary purpose, was to expose people as sinners, to show our true condition. Now, wonderfully, it isn't just to do that. If all that I do is live my life out under the guilt and condemnation and exposure of God's holy law, there's no redemption in that, is there? In fact, lots of Christians do that. They're always down on themselves because they know they fall short. 
But the purpose of the law in exposing us as sinners is so that we will turn to Christ for his grace. Let's turn to Romans 3. Romans is such a great epistle for issues having to do with law and grace, of course, as is Galatians. I want to read in Romans 3.19, great passage of Scripture. Paul here is going to also give the purpose of God's law. He says, Now we know that whatever the law says, it says to them who are under the law. Now right away, if you and I want to be under the law, which means on a works-based relationship with God. In other words, whatever I do determines God's attitude. Whatever I do determines my rewards and punishment. If you and I want to do that, he says, the law speaking to us in that case. He says, we know that whatever the law says, it says to them who are under the law. Now what should the effect be? That every mouth might be stopped and the whole world might become guilty before God. So in other words, if I'm a perfectly honest person and I face the law, two things ought to happen. Number one, I should shut up forever about my own righteousness. Every mouth ought to be stopped. Because the moment I look at the law of God, if I'm honest, I'm going to see how far short I fall from ever being able to keep it. And the second thing is that it's going to expose my guilt before God. That's what the law will do. Now, isn't it amazing how Paul gives the purpose of the law as being that which ought to fundamentally expose us as sinners and show us how much we need the grace of God? Isn't it amazing that some people nevertheless think, continue to think, that the reason God gave his law was so that we could be made righteous through it? In fact, I would take it even a step further. We read earlier that if you want to be under the law, you're under a curse. Some people think that by keeping the law, they'll escape the curse. And they don't read the Bible. They're guaranteeing a curse. Because they're trying to get saved. They're trying to reach up to God and pull him down from heaven by their works. Now, incidentally, the curse that's spoken of there isn't from God, necessarily. God isn't saying, well, you, you're on the wrong basis or I'm going to send you to hell. That's not the point. You and I both know, and you probably do this every day. I think all Christians do. What happens when you sin or you have a bad attitude and for a few moments maybe, maybe all day, maybe all week, it sort of escapes you about the truth of grace and the truth of God's forgiveness and you kind of get under this law thing to where you feel condemned to where you just don't feel like God is approving of you and you just feel like there's no way to no way back. There's no way out of this back to God. It's an awful thing, isn't it? To be caught up in that where you feel like you aren't good enough for God, you don't have any way out. And the more you try, the worse it gets. Can we see that that is a curse all in itself that's wrapped up in this works-based performance of being under the law, if you try to commend yourself or make yourself righteous before God through works, all that you're going to do is involve yourself in a downward spiral that cannot be escaped. Because the more you try, the more God raises the bar. The more you try, the more God raises the bar. Because how perfect is perfect? 
And how can we ever get that perfect? Now, Jesus, when he came, says Jesus came to fulfill the law, not abolish it. He said, you haven't seen anything yet if all you're reading is the letter of the law. He says, you have read of old, thou shalt not kill. I say to you, if you even have the wrong kind of anger in your heart, you're guilty. And he went one by one down a few of the Ten Commandments. And he said, the law of God doesn't apply simply to your actions. The law of God applies to your very being, what you are, what you think. Again, the problem with man is more than what we do. It's what we are. And the law of God will absolutely bury us in that regard. And that's not a lie. Again, that's not God being down on us. That's us. That's the way it is. It's the truth. But see, again, if we don't believe that, if we still think there's some scrap of decency in us without Christ, some scrap of righteousness, some way that we can please God through our works in the sense of meriting his favor, if we still think that, we're not going to even understand the grace of God, let alone receive it, And why? Because we're not going to think we need it. Again, is it possible to see Jesus Christ and still think that you're good enough to merit him? I'm going to tell you something. It might sound a little bit harsh. Don't mean to be that way, but it's the truth. These preachers out there that are preaching, you don't need to repent to be saved. They remove the ideas of sin from their vocabulary and their preaching. They preach cheap grace and make Christianity into nothing but club med. I will promise you that if you see Jesus Christ, you will never preach that. They have not seen Jesus. I watched the praise-a-thon last week from TBN and I felt like saying to Benny Hinn, you know something, Benny? Jesus did not die so you could drive a Cadillac. And I felt like saying to him, you know, you live in an ivory tower where you have millions of dollars and you preach these doctrines and you haven't got a clue about who Jesus Christ is or what price he paid to redeem the sinner. These people are heretics and we're in the middle of an apostasy. And it starts right here. Where does God make his approach to man? He makes his approach to us where we are as sinners. And he says, you have no hope and God will spend 30 years if necessary proving to us that we are nothing without him. And it's not to leave us there. It's not to make us feel lousy. It's so we'll turn to him and receive grace and receive all from him. And if I deny that, I am denying the cross of Jesus Christ. You listen to some of these folks on television today, the way they deny the need to repent of sin, you would swear Jesus wasted his time going to the cross. Why in the world did Jesus go to the cross if we're not all lost without him? And yet, that's the gospel that we have today, the gospel of the affirmation of man. And it is against what God is. Look up in the Bible... If you get a chance one of these days, it's a great study. Some of these instances, they're in the Old Testament, Book of Revelation, the New Testament. Every time somebody encountered a vision of God, 
What did they do? Did they walk up to God and say, Hi, how are you? And act like he was, you know, just another guy on the street? No, actually what they did is they fell on their face. And in most cases what they said is, Oh, what an unclean man I am. That isn't because God is awful and mean. That is because we don't have a clue as to what it really is all about. It's because, number one, we don't understand how far down we are. We don't understand from which we've fallen, our relationship with Him. And that brings in the example I often give, the fact that we continue, even as Christians, to think that we are right side up. We think we, in Adam, are normal. We think this world is normal. And, of course, we think that because it's all we've ever known, and we all look the same. So, sure, to us it is a normal God says, this is so utterly abnormal and, and, and is so far afield from what I originally intended. He says, you think you're right side up, you're really upside down. You think you're normal, you're really abnormal. And so how is God going to begin to open our eyes? Well, he has to begin by introducing some representation of the normal of righteousness. And the way he did begin was his law. Now the way he often begins in the life of the individual Christian is the same way. How many Christians will tell you that the, the beginnings of their call to Christ was uh, some terrible sin came back on their head. And they were convicted that they weren't right with God and that they were, they were shown how far short they came uh, from God's uh, glory and righteousness. And often it is like that. God will use the law to convict us of sin and show us our hopelessness. Sometimes we read right by verses. I think it's in Corinthians. He says, Don't you know that unless Christ were in you, you would be a reprobate? That just sounds so awful, doesn't it? Joel Steen would tell you, you know, God's, God's down on you there. He's picking on you. Robert Schuller would say, well, God's against your self-esteem because he's calling you a reprobate. What God would say to us is, no, actually I'm telling you the truth. But it's so that you will turn to me and I can bring you into a relationship with myself and set you free. But you see, if we don't want to believe we're reprobates, we'll never get that far, will we? We'll just march merrily along thinking that we're just fine. And so again, we see the necessity of coming to terms with man without God as we are all born in Adam. Now... God does not blame you and I for being born with a sin nature. You did not sit up the night before you were born because you didn't exist before you were born or conceived. You didn't sit up in heaven like some people think uh, we pre-exist. We don't, we don't. But you didn't sit up in heaven and decide to be born with a sin nature, did you? You were just born into it because that's what the race is. So we're not responsible for being born in Adam. You're little kids. God doesn't look at them and say, you dirty, rotten sinner. Kids aren't accountable, are they? They got born into this mess initially like you and I did. But we are responsible once we see the way out in Christ. Then we are responsible. And if we refuse Christ at that point, then how many see that we are now taking ownership over our situation and our condition? We are saying, I want this, 
and then we do become responsible for it. And so God needs to enlighten us to that in order that we might see. If we read here, uh, continuing on in Romans 3, here where I left off in verse 19 and 20, we'll see some of this uh, unfolding of God's purpose here. He says that every mouth might be stopped and the whole world might become guilty before God. Verse 20, Therefore by the deeds of the law shall no flesh be justified in his sight. For by the law is what? A knowing of sin. Again, how do we know that murder is a sin? Well, primary way is that God says thou shall not murder. Now, we ought to know by our conscience, but you can sear your conscience, and then you got the law. So, the law shows us what sin is. Again, sin was around a long time before God gave his law. God brought the law in to show sin and to show us as sinners. Now, verse 21 is where the big uh, pivot point occurs, which is really a proclamation of the gospel. Having said all of that, Paul says, but now, talking about the Christian age, but now the righteousness of God completely apart and independent of the law is manifested having been witnessed by the law and the prophets. And what righteousness is this? The righteousness which is by faith of Jesus Christ unto all and upon them that believe. For there is no difference, for all have sinned and come short of the glory of God, being justified freely by his grace. Now, what's he saying here? Couldn't be more clear, and it is utter utterly revolutionary to human thinking and even to some Christian thinking. God is saying that there is a righteousness that he will impart to us. He imputes it and he imparts it through the indwelling of Christ. He says, I will impart to you this righteousness completely independent of anything you do. It is not based on works. In fact, I'll tell you, the way that you come to the place where you receive it is you finally see that your works aren't in the picture and you put them aside because you know they're not good enough. You finally come to the place where you see, I can't do any of this on my own and I don't even want to try anymore. And then you see that God has always offered it freely in His Son, Jesus Christ. And it's not based on works. It's not based on anything whatsoever that you do. It is based simply on the fact that you turn to God, you relinquish yourself and believe and receive Christ. And then he says, because you have received Christ, you have received righteousness. And you have received grace. Never think of the grace of God as a thing that God gives us so much. The grace of God ultimately is not only his eternal attitude toward us, the God of all grace, but in the final analysis, the grace of God is a person. When you receive Christ, you are then under grace because you're in him. And that's the only reason you and I are. Now, having said that, now we come to the other side of the picture. We talk about how to receive the righteousness of God, how to be made righteous. Talking about the fact that the law comes in and exposes us as sinners. Okay. Now I get converted and I'm saved and I'm walking with God. What does the law serve in that case? 
lots of Christians believe that when Jesus became the fulfillment of the law, that that means that we can live any old way we want. And that we can completely discard God's law completely and, and sort of like it's done away with now that we're saved, who cares? That sort of attitude, which isn't the case at all. So what is the place of God's law in the life of the believer? Well, first of all, it certainly remains God's standard. Jesus said, do not think I have come to abolish the law. I have come to fulfill it. He didn't abolish it. If you go out and steal or kill, first thing that's going to happen is the law is going to tell you you sinned, including if you're a Christian. But the difference is the law is not going to condemn you. Didn't Paul say in Romans 8.1, There is therefore now no condemnation for those who are in Christ. Now, think about that for a second. He's talking to Christians. He says, There is therefore now no condemnation for those who are in Christ. Okay? Think about this for a second. Do we believe that Paul meant that there is no condemnation except when we sin? Well, if there's no condemnation except when we sin, then that means there is condemnation when we sin. So that means there is condemnation. Period. When else would there be condemnation except when we sin? See that? So in other words, when Paul said there is no condemnation for those who are in Christ, he doesn't mean except when we sin. He means even when we sin. has to mean that, or grace is worthless. Listen, if there's condemnation upon you from God when you sin, then your works are determining the grace of God. And you're popping in and out of condemnation and grace all the time, based on your works in that case. Which brings us right back to the complete opposite of everything the Bible teaches about this. Now, have we ever noticed that Romans 8.1, there is no condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus? Have we ever noticed that that verse follows Romans 7? What does Paul talk about in Romans 7? All the failures. In fact, he ends Romans 7 by saying, O wretched man that I am, who will deliver me from this body of death? Thank God through Jesus Christ. There is therefore no condemnation for those who are in Jesus Christ. Now, how could God do this? How could God, on the one hand, say, my law is a standard, but say, there's no condemnation regardless? How could God say to Christian people whom he has saved, you are no longer going to be judged based on your works, good or bad? Your salvation isn't going to be judged on that. Your reward isn't going to be judged on that. How could God do that? Of course, in comes the objections that people have. Well, if grace means that, then people will sin because grace abounds. That's the argument that Paul gets into in Romans 6. How could God do that? I think it comes back very clearly to the fact when we ask that question, we're betraying the fact that we don't know him and we don't know what salvation is. Think about this. We tend to think that the only way that God could control human beings, including his own people, is by setting up a system of rewards and punishments, blessings and cursings. 
we think that that's how God will keep you under wraps and, and control you. So in other words, we picture this Christian life where we're walking with God and we go along and, okay, we obey God and we don't disobey Him because in the back of our mind we're thinking, well, if I obey, obey Him, I'll get a reward. And if I disobey Him, we'll, I'll get cursed somehow. And I'm not pushing aside the fact that there are consequences for our actions. That's beside the point. What I'm getting at is this. Can we see that what I just described as a motivation for obedience, avoiding a punishment or seeking a reward, can we see that you can train any dog or animal the same way? Pardon my bluntness, but it's true. You can train any dog or animal if you have a big enough whip or a big enough liver snap. Right? People do it all the time. Is that a relationship that God wants with us? You and I don't even want that kind of a relationship with our kids or with others that we say we love. Do we, is human relationship, is human love summarized by the fact that you only do good to somebody because of what you're going to get out of it? I mean, if your kids had a relationship like that with you to where the only reason they obeyed you was because you were going to punish them if they didn't, it wouldn't say a whole lot about their sense of right and wrong, would it, let alone their respect for you as a parent. wouldn't say much about love. Now, nah, we're all human, and sometimes that motivation is there. We know that. But we're talking here about a relationship with God. Does God have to control saved people with a whip or with a reward? If He does, if that's how I am controlled, I don't know Him. The Bible says the reason why Christians are supposed to obey God and walk with Him is love. Love is the fulfilling of the law. Now, what does that mean as it pertains to a practical outworking and living a life? It means that I obey God because it's right to do and I delight to do it. I want to please Him. Now, what I just described there takes a miracle, doesn't it? And we're all in a process. But God says if you give your life to Christ, it isn't just a matter of adopting a religion. It's a matter of receiving new life from above. And in that new life is love. And we grow into that. And as we do, we more and more and more come to obey and walk with God out of that love. Turn for a second to 2 Corinthians 5. Same Paul that wrote all the stuff about the law. He says in verse 14, 2 Corinthians 5.14, For the law of God controls us. For being afraid of God controls us. For our desire for a reward or to avoid a punishment controls us? No. He says, for the love of God controls us. Maybe God has a secret. And boy, this has been a difficult one for me to learn. Maybe God understands that once we get to know Him and experience Him, obedience becomes a byproduct naturally. 
Once God, maybe God has a secret and he knows I don't have to control people with a whip. They will obey me of their own voluntary free will if they'll just come along with me and grow to know me. Fact of the matter is, I've said this before, and it's true. If you're obeying God for a reward or to avoid a punishment, it isn't love. It just isn't. Because your goal there is not love, your goal there is what you're getting. If you're obeying God because you're afraid of Him, not love. What does 1 John say? There is no fear in love. Because perfect love casts out fear. So how could you obey God because of fear and call it love? Can't. Turn it into a math problem. 1 John 4 says God is love. Then it says there is no fear in love. Do the math. That means there's no fear in God. The being afraid kind of fear. There's no fear in God. Consequently, can you know God and be afraid of Him in the sense of dreading? No, you'll revere Him. That's the fear of the Lord. Reverence. For the love of God controls us because we judge that if one died for all, then we're all dead. And that He did die for all, that they which live should not henceforth live unto themselves, but unto Him which died for them and rose again. What is it, according to this passage, that will bring us to the place ultimately? And again, I have to emphasize all the time, this is a growth process. What is it that gets us to the place where we're able to live, not for ourselves any longer, but for God? Love. Isn't that what love is? Jesus said, no greater love is this that, than that a man lay down his life for his friends. No selfishness in that. If you read 1 Corinthians 13, love seeks not her own. Again, you can try all you want to muster that up without Christ, but the best you're going to come up with is an emotional human love that ultimately will prove disastrous. Unsaved people can do lots of loving things. But a good, a bad tree can't bear good fruit, and in the end it'll be proven. So the love of God that seeks His glory and His will is what this is supposed to be all about. And so we find in the New Testament that Paul the Apostle, the greatest Pharisee that ever lived, who was delivered from that legalism, from that living under the law as his entire lifestyle was. He, he knew what he was talking about when he was talking about this stuff. Here's the Apostle Paul knocked off his horse on the road to Damascus, years later emerging and saying, if you're under the law, you're under a curse. The way is the law of love. Love is fulfilled in the law and the law fulfills love spiritually and in every other way. I want to turn to close 1 John. 1 John talks a lot about love. And in doing so, gives a whole bunch of effects of love. One way to say it. What is the impact of having received Christ and of 
beginning to see his love and be controlled by that. One of them is 1 John 2.15. He says there, Love not the world, neither the things that are in the world. And then this statement, which is quite a divider. If any man loves the world, the love of the Father is not in him. Boy, that sort of takes a knife and cuts through it all, doesn't it? So one of the effects of having the love of God in you and I is that to a greater and greater degree, again, a process, we will less and less love what the world's all about, the mentality, the goals, and so forth. Translated, we won't be living for this life. We'll be living for God uh, because we love him. 1 John 3, 3. One of the effects of love, every man that has this hope in him purifies himself even as he is pure, even as God is pure, in other words. Said many times, you can't fall in love with Jesus Christ without it resulting in wanting to obey him. Now, you can fail to obey him even if you want to because we're in the flesh. But the bottom line is you want to obey him and then when you sin you want to come back to him and you want to obey him. That's love. And that is something that's the result of being born again. You want to obey God. 1 John 4.8 He that loves not does not know God. For God is love. In this was manifested the love of God toward us because God sent His only begotten Son into the world that He might live, we might live through Him. Herein is love, not that we loved God, but that He loved us and sent his son. So in other words, once we recognize that God loves us, once we receive that and experience that, we're going to love him. So when Oprah Winfrey gets up and angrily denounces Christianity, is she loving God? The Bible says, he that does not have the son has not the father either. Pretty Pretty simple statement. So in other words, if we receive the love of God, it should eventually result in us loving God. It just has to, because it's life in Christ. And lastly, 1 John 5, 3, perhaps the summary of everything we've said today. Did Jesus abolish the law so that Christians don't need to care? It isn't a matter of whether we need to or whether we're required. It's a matter that we will. It says here, for this is the love of God, that we keep his commandments. And his commandments are not grievous or burdensome. In other words, if I have the love of God in me, it isn't a matter of me saying, well, gee, God requires me to keep his commandments. Aw, shucks. What it is a matter of, if I have the love of God in me, is that I will keep his commandments. I'll want to, at least. It starts with the want to, doesn't it? If there's no want to, you're not going to. But if you want to, you will. And even when you fail, you'll come back, because you still want to. It's the will that we're talking about. He that has the love of God will keep his commandments, but I like the end of this. Because the commandments are not... A pain, in other words, are not grievous. In other words, as David said in the Psalms, I delight to do thy will, O God. Again, that's a miracle for somebody to be able to say that, based on where we start in Adam at enmity against God. To get to the place where a person can say, I delight to do your will. Well, that's why Christianity isn't a religion. 
It's a new birth. It's the result of having received something from above that transforms, really, ultimately, everything about us to where we can actually live walking in the love of God. So what is the purpose of the law of God? It's to make us accountable to God. It's to reveal to us the righteousness of God. And in doing so, expose us as being dead sinners without Him. But all unto getting us on our knees so that we can receive and embrace the grace of God in Jesus Christ. And having done so, then what emerges from that is love and grace and obedience. That's the way God does it. And if he does it that way, can we see it's not religion, it's real.